Obviously, you may have already noticed we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. If you heard yesterday on Palm Tree me tell you that, it gave you the opportunity to be somewhat prepared. On Palm Sunday, one of the Sundays, we like to change things around a little bit. We're going to move away today from our Ten Commandments series and talk about Passion Week today. And specifically on this day, on Palm Sunday, we love to end with praise and adoration. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Welcome to Community Alliance. There are a lot of information in your bulletin. I trust you've read it already, and you obviously have seen uh, a little bit of a new format this morning, so I trust you'll read through it very carefully so you won't miss out on a thing. This Sunday, first Sunday of the month, is family experience, and they get the opportunity to, as a family, from kindergartners to fourth grade, learn the virtue of the month. So as soon as the service is over, 10 minutes after this one ends, go that direction, take your children from kindergarten to fourth grade into that family experience theater and celebrate together and learn what they're going to be learning throughout this month and what they'll concentrate on. This week is Passion Week, and uh, Good Friday evening, 7 o'clock here in our sanctuary. We'll celebrate Good Friday together with communion, and all of you are invited, and I trust you'll come. Then next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, three services only on that Sunday, 8, 9.30, and 11. No child care at 8, but the others, 9.30 and 11, they'll be the exact same things that we offer on a normal basis on a Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, but no child care at 8. We're hoping all those who don't have children who can come early at the 8 o'clock service will join us together for that. Pretend like it's a sunrise service and uh, come together and enjoy that experience so that 11 o'clock, we just wanted to be in a place this year at this time at Easter and Christmas where no one got turned away or had to go to an alternative room. We just really wanted to avoid that this year. And so this year on Christmas and Easter, we're offering three services so that we can make sure we can accommodate everyone. So please invite a friend. Let them know. Every service will be 55 minutes, just so you know that as well, so we have enough of a turnaround time to get from one to the other. And uh, then Tim Hawkins' concert's coming up. You may have seen and have been hearing uh, the 7 o'clock service has been can- or turn- or full, overflowing, actually, and so we have a 4 o'clock matinee. And uh, you can get all those tickets by going on our website and going on to his and all that information will be there so you won't miss out on a thing. You don't want to miss that one because it will be a lot of fun. I want to personally take this moment to welcome Jose, Sergeant Jose Talamantes. Uh, with us this morning, Sergeant Jose is directly back from Afghanistan uh, this week. So, There are many others. Wow. Thank you. There are many others, and see, please, if you know someone, Jose and I have been friends for a while, but if you know someone that's overseas or serving, there are others that were deployed this week and other places that left on Thursday and Friday morning, and some of the next couple of weeks are going to be deployed as well. But uh, just continue to pray for them. And Jose, I, I never want to embarrass you, but it's so good to have you back. And I've been praying for you for so long. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have lost something valuable. In some cases, it could be a family heirloom or just maybe something really precious that you didn't want to lose. We moved here 17 years ago, almost 17 years ago now, coming up in October in the fall. And I was moving things back in a pickup truck on a pretty regular basis. It was a three-hour drive from Cowdersport to here, so we were moving kind of continually. There was one point where obviously everything was going to be on a U-Haul and we would be here. But I was making those transitional times in the few weeks prior to that, and I would come down with a pickup load and then unload it in our house out where we live on the other side of Herman and then come here on Sunday morning, go back up and get another load throughout the week. 
at some point in one of those experiences, I lost my wedding ring. And uh, to me, I adore my wife, and I, I, I will never forget the day when she placed it on my finger, and I just didn't want to lose it. And uh, I've been pretty careful throughout the years to do that, and it was gone. And I looked everywhere, couldn't find it anywhere, literally for months, and, and couldn't find it. In the spring thaw, I found it in our driveway uh, under the ice. And uh, I knew there was something silver or gold shining out of the ice, and I ran over and chipped back the ice and got it, ran in the house like I found a million bucks. And uh, had her put it on my hand again. I said, I promise, honey, I'll never lose it again. And so far, we got 39 coming up this summer, and I've held on to it really tight. But to me, that was one of those moments where, man, that just was one of the most uh, valuable things to me personally that I didn't want to lose. And then throughout the years, when you see so many other people lose so many much more valuable things than that, you obviously, you obviously recognize the devastation of some of that. Just watching the uh, events over the last number of months unfold with so many people who have gone through tornadoes when they're picking up in a, in a laundry basket their leftovers. I can't even fathom what it's like for them to try to gather all of their precious things, and many times what they have left is just a basket. Now, what it must be like to lose all of those things that are so unbelievably valuable to you. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation where you've had a broken relationship that, in your case, was more painful than you ever thought it would be. Some of you sitting here this morning have gone through broken relationships. Some have had the betrayal of divorce, and, and you know what that's like. You never imagined when you stood there that day and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, that it would ever happen, but now you've experienced it. And every once in a while, even, and I never do it intentionally, but when you hear a sermon like that or a phrase like that, some of that pain comes back to you in that incredible moment of that deep, broken relationship. Some of you as parents, not all of you, and I hope none of you ever go through that, but some of you as parents have remembered what it was like to have a child walk away, either walk away from you as a family or walk away from their faith. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. And still to this day, you remember what that moment was like and you still feel the agony and pain of having someone you love so deeply walk away from you or walk away from the family or walk away from their faith. And you know what that's like. If you've ever experienced any of those emotions, in whatever context you may have experienced it, you know then a little bit of the range of emotions of Passion Week. In any of those experiences, whatever that may be, if you resonate with any of those emotions, then you have somewhat of an understanding of the depth and the range of emotions of Passion Week. You and I were lost in sin with absolutely no hope of finding our way. You ever wonder what it was like from God's vantage point in that context? When man was created, we were God's masterpiece. Whether you believe that or not, whether you understand that or not, you and I are God's masterpiece. If you've ever seen a magnificent portrait, I'm talking Da Vinci or Michelangelo or, or something along that line. I had the privilege years ago, it was just an unbelievable God privilege uh, of, uh, that he gave me of going to the Sistine Chapel. And I remember for, literally for an hour and a half walking through there, I didn't say a word, and that's pretty rare for me. But you'd walk through that and you just kept looking up and around and up and around. And, and for almost an hour on end, I would walk through that Sistine Chapel just stunned by the portraits and stunned by the beauty. 
And I kept looking at that over and over again. And, and you would see the statues up and down some of the hallways. And you'd go to another hallway. And again, it took your breath away when you saw the majesty and wonder of that. And then I kept realizing this is only paintings and granite. You and I are God's masterpiece. As beautiful and as magnificent as all of those are, they're still paintings and still granite. You and I in humanity as God's masterpiece. We are God's finest work with all the splendor of creation. And for some of you, that's hard to grasp. You're not, I'm not even sure if you believe it. But with all the splendor of creation, whatever you have seen that has taken your breath away, the most amazing spot, whether it was the most amazing sight, whether it was the first time in the Colorado Rockies or the Grand Canyon, or the most breathtaking sight you've ever seen, it pales in comparison to how God views you and I. Not all of us believe that. Some of us even wrestle with that. But I'm telling you, you and I are God's masterpiece. You and I are God's finest work. And with all the majesty and splendor of creation around us, we are everything that God had his eye on. Max Licato calls us the apple of God's eye. It's so much more than that. We are God's finest work. We are God's masterpiece. And when we walked away on our own, doing our own thing, choosing our own direction, with sin that destroyed that incredible creation and man walking aimlessly in the dark without hope and without direction, you've got to believe how broken God's heart was. We wandered that way for a century. Man's condition kept getting worse and worse and worse. I've often wondered what it was like for God in heaven as he watched his children walk aimlessly in the dark. I don't like the dark myself, and the one thing I don't like to do is send my children out into the dark. I've got a $70 flashlight. My Kids thought I was insane for spending that much on a flashlight. I'm telling you, that thing could land a plane. But when I go out at night, I want to make sure I see everything in front of me for as far as it can go. I can't even imagine what it's like for God to watch his children walk aimlessly in the dark, wanting so bad to see them find the direction that they needed, wanting them so bad to come back to him. But for all of those centuries and all of that time, as time continued to trickle on, of seeing his children walk aimlessly in the dark, I can almost sense God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit watching from heaven saying, now. Now, the time is right. Go rescue them. Go bring them back. Go rescue them. Go show them the way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit waited for centuries for the events of this week, this one week in the 6,000 plus years of humanity, for this one week to unfold and restore the relationship that had been broken. Humanity was in desperate need of salvation. Everybody had been crying for a rescuer. For centuries they've cried for a rescuer, and only one could answer that cry. Jesus knew the price he was going to have to pay to answer that cry, and yet he still marched on. In Matthew chapter 20, you don't have to turn there this morning, two other sections that we'll spend some time on. But before Palm Sunday celebration takes place in Matthew 20, it says this. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, said to them this. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. I've said to you before, I don't think I'm afraid to die, but I'm honestly a little concerned about the how. 
I know exactly where I'm going when I die. I know exactly what's going to take place when that happens, and I know I'm going to see Jesus face to face, so I'm not afraid to die. I am a little concerned about the how and a little concerned about the when. What fascinates me about Jesus is that he knew how he was going to die, and he knew when he was going to die, and he still marched on. The events of this week are filled with more intensity and emotion than probably the last three years of ministry combined. Everything we hold on to in Christianity is held together by the events of this week. Everything that God had waited centuries to do was about to unfold. I, again, often wonder what it's like. You and I read this story so often. We know how it unfolds. We know the next event. We know what happens on Friday. We know what happens on Thursday. We know what happens on Easter Sunday morning. We've seen it all. We've read it all. We've heard it all a thousand times that we sometimes forget what it was like for them to walk through this for the very first time. And what it was like for God in heaven to have waited all of those centuries for this one event, this one week of time, this one weekend of time to take place. And then it happens. Only Jesus knew how the events of this week were going to unfold. He knew how they were going to play out. He went into it fully committed to the plan. If you've ever been around professional athletes before a major event, they always say, and you can watch them every once in a while, those specifically who have a particular part to play, they get into what's called a zone. I love winter sports, not always summer sports as much, but I love watching the Olympics. And almost every time you've watched a skier prepare for their moment down, that slope, especially if it's a short moment, you can see them close their eyes and then move. And you can watch them get into that zone knowing exactly what's going to take place, knowing exactly what the next turn is going to be like. And they envision it all in their head before they ever open that gate to get down that slope. And most professional athletes do that. I, 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 I can't breathe right before I'm knowing that I'm going to stand up. I've got the script in front of me. I know when I'm next. I can't even imagine what it's like for some of them to be in that situation where their whole life or their whole career is based on that particular moment. And, and so they concentrate on that, and they get very cautiously aware of what's going to take place. Pales in comparison to what had to be going through Jesus' mind this week. I've often wondered if he envisioned every moment of it. He knew what was going to take place, knew how it was going to happen, knew how it was going to play out, knew what price he was going to pay, knew what it was going to feel like, knew the betrayal and the intensity and emotions and the, the, the loss and the betrayal and the devastation. And yet he went into it fully committed to the plan. He loved us that much. The events of Passion Week really begin with a triumphal entry. Found in Luke chapter 19, they all have a, a version of it. And I want to read the one from Luke 19 this morning. So if you have your Bibles want to turn there, that'd be great. I know I've said it before a hundred times, but I, I always try every time Easter or Christmas comes by to, to read one of the events or a number of the events from different versions and, and different sections, different vantage point of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as they look at it from their various standpoints. This morning I want to read two events very different from one another, one from Luke's vantage point, and another one I'll read later from Matthew's. This in Luke 19 says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, 
threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus under it. As he went along, people spread their coats and cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in he- or peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar from the Christmas story? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you were to take a cross-section of the people who were there that day, that very first time in Jerusalem and watching these events unfold, you would find people from all walks of life. Many had seen events like this before with a conquering king coming into town, but never like this, riding on a colt or riding on a donkey. But they were there that day. They were there to sing and to praise and to worship and to cheer. Many of the crowd had heard his sermons. Many, I believe, had seen his miracles. And it even indicates in the Luke passage that many of them had seen him heal. Some of them, you often wonder if they were one of the ones that he healed. And whether they ever had the chance to thank him or to say anything about that or where they are now based on the healing, they come together for this moment. And they come from all walks of life, from all standpoints, people participating and celebrating from a variety of standpoints. Some really wanted, I honestly believe with all my heart, to genuinely express their gratitude. Either because of a miracle they had seen or a miracle they had participated in or a healing that they had received, but they really, I honestly believe, wanted to just say thank you for what they had seen him do. Others were hoping beyond hope that he really was the king that he said he was going to be. That he really would be the one to rescue them from their bondage, the one who would take them out of the mess that they're in. Some were simply caught up into the celebration and excitement of the moment, and probably others were just observers. Unfortunately, those closest to the significance of understanding this event weren't excited at all. Matter of fact, they wanted everyone to keep quiet. They were so busy discussing religion, possibly, they missed the greatest opportunity of all, an opportunity to praise and adore the God of all religion who was right in front of them. So busy discussing possibly the questions of life that they missed the answers to life who was right there in front of them. So busy with form and style that they missed the spontaneity of celebration. It can still happen today. Every Sunday, Jesus is here. Not on a donkey, and you may not see him, but he is here. Psalm 22 said, God inhabits the praise of his people. And just as on that given day, there were so many different responses there are today. Some sing out of habit. Some sing in praise because it's a part of the service. He says, stand up. He says, sing. I sing. The words are on a screen. I'm going to follow along. I'm going to participate. Some do it because they like the music. Others get excited about the celebration. Some do it out of emotion. Many do do it as a way of showing gratitude. It's an opportunity to corporately gather together and just to say thanks to the God of the universe who did rescue us and redeem us and set us free. Many do it as a way of showing that gratitude. Some wish it were more exciting. Others wish it were more reserved. But however you feel, Jesus knows. Whatever you think about it, Whatever you feel about it, 
however you respond to it, he knows. He still sees the faces as he did that day. He still looks beyond the face to the heart and sees exactly why we do what we do when we gather together every single Sunday morning and give him praise. Just as he did that day in Jerusalem, he still knows whether my heart's in it or not. There's another event I want to take you to this morning about this particular week. It's found in Matthew 26. Vastly different from this one. But as I began studying over the last few weeks and preparing for this day, it it again fascinated me of the contrast between the two. It's found in Matthew chapter 26. It begins at verse 6. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all share versions of this. I want to read the one from Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw that, they were indignant. What the, why the waste, he said, they said. Perfume could have been sold at a higher price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with me, but me you always won't. When she poured this perfume on my body, she was preparing it for burial. Truly, I tell you, whatever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This time, the scene is drastically different from the one in the Luke passage that I read to you a moment ago. This time, instead of thousands of people caught up in a celebration, there's only a few. And this time, instead of focusing on the, the responses of so many different people, I want to, and, and he does as well, concentrate only on one. John's the only one. I reread him again this morning, and if I'm reading it correctly, John's the only one that really identifies exactly who she is. Many think it's Mary Magdalene, and it may have been her name, but John specifically identifies her as Mary Lazarus's sister of Mary and Martha. The setting is in Simon the leper's house. Three out of the four say that. It's a very simple home. By the time this week's going to end, Jesus is going to be in a lot of different homes, certainly more elegant than Simon's. He's going to be in the home of the high priest. He's going to be in the palace of Herod the Great and the home of Pontius Pilate. But he'll never be treated like he was in Simon's house. And he'll remember this home because this meant more to him than all the others combined, not because of where he was, but because of what she did. Max Cato describes it like this. It wasn't an act of impulse. It was carefully thought out. She carried a large vial of perfume from her house to Simon's. It wasn't a spontaneous gesture, but it was an extravagant one. Perfume, Scripture tells us, was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. Then and now, it doesn't change. Can you imagine a year's wages on one thing? Probably the one thing I'm sure of value that she had, the most valuable thing maybe she had in her life. She stepped up behind Jesus and stood with a jar in her hand. Within a couple of moments, every mouth was silent and every eye wide open as they watched her nervous fingers begin to take off the cover. Only Jesus was unaware of her presence. And just as he noticed everyone looking behind him, she began to pour over his head, over his shoulders, and down his back. 
fragrance filled the room, and her story lives on for centuries. In your quiet moments with Jesus, when no one else sees, how do you respond? What about when no one else agrees with your style? One of the things that I constantly ask myself on many occasions is, is my worship and praise based on emotion and the excitement of the moment or on a relationship? A relationship where I really do want to express my love. All of us file into church on Sunday morning one by one, like many have said, separate alabaster spaces. But if anyone's to be affected and if Jesus is to be honored, the vases have to be open and the contents poured out. Otherwise, the air is filled with nothing. You and I have the opportunity every day to express our love to God. Sometimes it is in our quiet moments when very few see And sometimes it's in the celebration of a Sunday morning. But to remember that the God of the universe, who saw our lost condition, who loved us more than we could ever fathom and imagine, who sees us as his finest work and his greatest masterpiece, knew without him we had absolutely no hope for now and eternity. And so he paid the ultimate price, sent his one and only son, to rescue, redeem us, and to take us home and to set us free. And when we fully grasp and understand the significance of that, you've got to want to respond. And so this morning we do. Father, we thank you so much for a plan conceived since before the foundation of the world. I hope I never get over the fact that we're on this side of the cross. I've often wondered what it would be like for us to be on the other side of the cross, waiting for century after century after century after century to be rescued and redeemed, only to live and die without ever knowing the Messiah. But in your amazing sovereignty, here we are on this side of the cross, and we know what it's like to be rescued and redeemed. We know what it's like to be lost. We remember those days when we wander aimlessly in the dark. And then to know that you came and rescued us and offered us life. And so either like Mary or like the thousands that were gathered that day over 2,000 years ago on that Palm Sunday or that Passion Week, we come today to give you praise. So receive it. We're all coming from different vantage points. God, you know that. You know our hearts better than anyone else. And so as we sing and praise you and adore you, from various walks of life and from various standpoints and various responses. Receive it and allow us as we participate to recognize that the God of the universe who loves us so much sent his son so that we can have life and have it forever. And because of this week, we celebrate.